Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. An unusual thematic unity today, two looks at British politics. Simon Cooper, author of a new book on the wing of the British upper class that produced outgoing Prime Minister Boris Johnson, will give us the rundown in his cast. And James Meadway, a former advisor to the Corbyn wing of the Labour Party, will analyze the economic thinking of that party's current leader, the drab Keir Starmer. Alexander Boris de Feffel Johnson, known publicly as Boris and Al to his family, is on his way out as Prime Minister of Britain. His regime has been marked by one scandal after another, including some massive violations of COVID isolation rules that his government had imposed on everyone else in the country except him and his pals. It all finally caught up with him as his cabinet and party decided it was time for him to go. Under the British parliamentary system, his successor will be decided by the membership of the Conservative, a.k.a. Tory, party. The candidates are Liz Truss, currently the foreign minister and the favorite, and Rishi Sunak, whose resignation as Chancellor of the Exchequer in early July helped seal Johnson's fate. My first guest, Simon Cooper, is just out with a book called Chums, How a Tiny Cast of Oxford Tories Took Over the UK from Profile Books. He's also a Paris-based columnist for the Financial Times. Simon Cooper. This culture uh, that you write about... I don't know, it seems in some ways like a, a cartoonish echo of, of British ruling class of the past. You write about the influence, for example, of the TV version of Brideshead Revisited on their idea of who they were supposed to be. What about the relationship of this crew, Johnson, Cameron, the Tory elites of recent years? Um, what, what is their relation to that, uh, their British ancestors, or English ancestors, I prefer? I guess they prefer to say English rather than British. They're kind of a throwback. Because for most of the time into the 1960s, it was the boarding school and Oxford caste that I describe in the book that ruled Britain, men from that caste. And then from the 60s, you had a new, more meritocratically selected group of people who had come from ordinary backgrounds who were also getting into Oxford or through other means ascending to power. So someone like Margaret Thatcher would be a well-known example of that, quite an ordinary background, but also other prime ministers of the... 60s and 70s, like Harold Wilson and Ted Heath. And then from 2010, you get the Etonians come back with first David Cameron and then Boris Johnson. And these are people who are selected in some ways at birth, Cameron more so than Johnson, but still they come from the boarding school caste, which is sort of 1% of the British population. And people hadn't really expected that group of people to make a comeback. So their relationship is, it's like a restoration. It's like the, uh, you know, the kings of France coming back after the French Revolution in a way in the early 1800s. You mentioned Eton. Uh, how important is the, the boarding school culture in creating uh, this set? The people I write about are a product of school and Oxford both. It wouldn't work without one of those things. So Oxford is an essential step to British power. In the past, you've got a lot of sort of less academic boys who went through Eton, didn't bother going to university, and then they went into the city of London to work in a bank or went home to run the, the family estate. And there's not really a role in society anymore for those sort of posh boys without an education. So to ascend to ultimate power, Eton is a huge step, but Oxford is another. So they're creations of both school and university. You mentioned Thatcher, uh, but you write in the 80s, the upper classes were regaining the confidence that had been beaten out of them during Britain's social democratic 1945 to 79 era. Now, for that, they have to thank Thatcher, who is certainly not of that class, although she did affect their accent. What is and was their relation to her and that, that what it purported to be a revolution? Thatcher's relationship to the traditional upper class is quite ambiguous, because on the one hand, she had contempt for them. She thought, you know, these people born with a silver spoon, they didn't have to work hard, they're not aggressive, they're not winners like me. And she fought with the kind of upper-class men who dominated the Conservative Party in her day. And on the other hand, she also, and this is quite typical among meritocratic strivers in Britain, she also admired and envied them. And she sent her own son to boarding school. So she also sought in some ways to join them. 
And she recasts sort of boarding school as something that winners do. So, you know, your family has money and they send you to a boarding school. Well, that's good. It means that you guys are smart. You won. And so in that way, Thatcher had that combination of, let's say, Ronald Reagan coupled with a desire to cozy up to an admiration for the WASP class. When I was visiting London in 1981, uh, there was an essay in the, the Times, the pre-Murdoch Times, that mocked her for her bogus Belgravia accent. She did try to ape the manners of the class, right? Well, it was very common in the decades after the war that if you had ascended from the working class or middle class, then you would then have elocution lessons, it was called. You would learn to speak posh. And she very much did learn that. And so she had come from Middle England. Her father was a successful grocer. And she was mocked at Oxford. She was sort of sniggered at behind her back by these posh men who were the Oxford politicos of the day. People like her in those days typically worked very, very hard on their accents. And for her, it was a lifetime's work. Every sentence had to be thought through how it was going to be said. The set frowns upon work. You quote Jan Morris as saying it was the, the, the admired, uh, the appearance at least, of effortless superiority. And I'm kind of reminded of the old wasp elite here. You say they they, um, they learned how to write and speak for a living without much knowledge. People said that of Yale when I was there. Or uh, you mentioned uh, some fellow who read an essay for a blank piece of paper. And there's a famous story about McGeorge Bundy at Groton uh, who did the same thing. And he later went on to be one of the architects of the Vietnam War. But that formation is now quite diminished, clipped by um, all these Aravistes of the last uh, generation or two. They seem to live on in Britain. Is there really no challenge from that sort of upwardly mobile, uh, striving class? There is a challenge from the upwardly mobile, striving class. I think it was less strong a challenge than at the traditional elite U.S. universities. So until the 60s, Harvard and Yale are mostly like Oxford and Cambridge until the 60s, sort of finishing schools for young gentlemen. And they let in a few outsiders, you know, more ordinary kids and non-WASP kids are allowed in. But they're very much on the fringes. And then in the 60s, Harvard and Yale changed quite drastically. Of course, America is a much more multicultural, more diverse society. There's more people trying to push their way in. In Britain, you get something of that change, but the upper class hangs on more successfully than it does in the US. But still, when I was at Oxford in the 80s, we thought those people were on the way out, the kind of traditional tough class. They would be left behind in the race, much as it happened to posh American wasps. But we were wrong. It turned out that they were very smart at hanging on. And Eton also transforms itself, as American boarding schools do, into a more scholarly, hardworking sort of place. So it becomes a kind of mock meritocracy. Well, you can't just be a gentleman. You also have to do a bit of work and you know, know some stuff. Eton says, okay, we'll turn out gentlemen who do a bit of work and know some stuff. Because Eton's mission is to produce the ruling class. So it's damn well going to stick with whatever the demands for the ruling class happen to be. You describe Oxford's class struggle as one between the Toffs and the Stains. Could you decode that for an American audience? Well, in the 80s, I learned researching the book, I didn't know this before, the upper class word for middle class people at Oxford was Stains. Like they were Stains on the surroundings. And Toffs is a well-known British word for very posh people. So Cameron is an archetypal Toff. And so these were the kinds of words that were used about each other. And of course, in Britain, class is much more, you know, you wear it on your tongue. Famously, as soon as you open your mouth, the other person can decode your class. So it's extremely visible. What you didn't have at Oxford in the ACs was uh, any significant working class presence. So it was really, the class struggle was between the upper class and the upper middle class. You mentioned though that they use the, the, the term, the, uh, the upper class uses the term middle class. How do they use that? What's the ideological function of it? Well, to disguise their privilege, they describe themselves as middle class. Now, when you hear middle class, and in America, middle class means something lower. It means a kind of hardworking person who is somewhere near middle income. So when you hear middle class, you think, okay, that's about middle income for the country. But no, in British discourse, middle class has come to mean fairly high income. And so almost anyone can describe themselves as middle class. If you think about it logically, once someone like David Cameron or Boris Johnson describes themselves as middle class, this is just ludicrous because these people's families are in the top one or two percent of the income ladder. They're in the top one or two percent of, let's say, the accent ladder. So in no sense are they middle class. So it's a euphemism for privilege and politeness. Johnson, Boris Johnson is in many ways like the, <laughs> the star of this. Clever fellow, but really empty. Is he like the archetype of this class or this breed? 
he is a kind of extreme parody of the weaknesses of the traditional upper class. He can just speak and write. He never reads the dossier. He doesn't work. He treats politics as just a game. He takes his own privilege for granted. So he's not really an archetype. He's like a an unadulterated caricature. He's almost, for my book, I sometimes felt guilty. He was too perfect an example of the flaws that I was talking about. And he himself embodies that parody with some self-knowledge. He's a toff who's playing a toff. So it's quite a complicated act. Well, he had a slightly um, RVist background, right? I mean, his family was more, as you describe at one point, bohemian. Yeah, bohemian, but his father went to boarding school. His father went to a less posh boarding school than Eton. But statistically, only 1% or so of the British population goes to boarding school. So if not just you and your brothers and sister, but also your father went to boarding school, I think we can safely classify you in the 1%. So you see, within that 1%, there's a huge amount of envy and inferiority complex. So the Johnsons see themselves as Arabists within the 1% because that's they're comparing themselves with schoolmates, people around them who have huge landed estates and titles. So, for example, Johnson's best friend at school and at Oxford was Lord Spencer, the brother of Diana Spencer, uh, Princess Diana. So Johnson sort of is mentally comparing himself to Lord Spencer, and he thinks, well, I'm not privileged, he is. But of course, compared to 99% of the British population, Johnson is privileged. You know, yes, there are, he has all sorts of immigrant roots. His uh, father's mother was born in France to a French mother. Somebody else was a Turkish exiled politician who came to the UK 100 years ago and adopted the word Johnson. So he is a mix, but a very privileged mix. There's a, a something of a labor branch of this Oxford culture. Keir Starmer had a graduate degree, so I guess he's not really fully a, a member of this class. But um, what, if anything, does that say about Starmer's politics? I mean, historically, most senior labor people, as well as most senior conservatives, have been through Oxford. So most senior Labour politicians, Blair himself, of course, but most of the ones since Blair also. Now, you know, there are many Oxfords, and I try to explain that in the book, that there's this tough Oxford that Boris Johnson and his friends inhabit. The Oxford Union debating societies at the centre of that. It's very attractive to right-wing politicos. And then there's a more, as I say, upper-middle-class or middle-class Oxford, which is where most Labour people sit. And they don't go to the Oxford Union because they think that's uh, just a privileged debating society for toffs. But they, they're in the Labour club and they're voting motions on uh, support for the Palestinians, support for the striking miners sort of thing. And they themselves are being shaped by Oxford, but in a different way. So the Oxford of Labour Politico is very, very formative, but it's a different Oxford from the one Johnson inhabited. So Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer, who sit opposite each other, for now still as Prime Minister and leader of the opposition, they both leave Oxford in the same year, 1987. They're exact contemporaries. But while there, I'm sure Starmer knew exactly who Johnson was, not vice versa. While there, they lived in a diff- different university. Johnson had a cult about him, right? He had a fan club, yeah. I mean, he was sort of the same figure he is now. He hasn't really evolved much. He was always very charismatic, always funny, always didn't brush his hair, deliberately messy to show that he had the status to transgress norms. He was the most charismatic Etonian of his day, and so at Oxford he was kind of a star, and he went out with the most beautiful woman at the university, and he married her very briefly afterwards. Everybody knew who he was. And I'm guessing if you polled people at Oxford 40 years ago and said, who do you think will be prime minister in 2022? The most popular answer would probably have been Boris Johnson. The role of PM is almost an Oxonian by uh, right, right? That's the default. So 12 of 16 prime ministers since the war went to Oxford. I'm counting the next one, Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss. Whoever wins, it will be an Oxfordian, Oxonian. And uh, three of those 16 prime ministers didn't go to university, including Churchill. Only one went to another university, Gordon Brown went to Edinburgh, because the Scottish elite follows a slightly different trajectory. I'm speaking with Simon Cooper, author of Chums, just out from Profile Books. Of more consequence than these personalities, the Brexit movement was uh, essentially born in Oxford during this era. Could you, could you describe how that came to be? Margaret Thatcher is the heroine, the guiding light for this, the current generation of British Brexiteers. And... She was a pro-European. She was helping to build the European single market. And then suddenly in 1988, she gives this Eurosceptic speech, the Bruges speech, in which she says, look, watch out for Brussels because 
They're going to start regulating countries much more. The single market is going to come with much closer regulation of, let's say, product standards from the center. So they'll encroach on the power of national parliaments. She didn't like that at all. And so she warns against the power of Brussels. And for these Oxford public school boys who know that when they're grown up, they're going to run the country because that's what their caste does, it's a shock. They think, hang on, running Britain is what we do. It's what our caste do. And now our heroine is telling us that the Brussels bureaucrats are going to try and muscle in. They have a very emotional, instinctive reaction. They don't like this at all. And so they start to fight back. One Oxford undergraduate called Patrick Robertson actually leaves Oxford to found the Bruges Group, age 20, which will become the most powerful anti-European think tank in Britain over the next 30 years. Another, Dan Hanan, founds the Oxford Campaign for an Independent Britain. And after leaving Oxford, Hanan goes down to London and starts organising Conservative MPs into the European Research Group. And for the next 25 years, while everyone else is watching the news cycle, Hanan is kind of plotting Brexit. But when the Brexit referendum comes around in 2016, Hanan is ready. So I was really amazed to find in the research how many of the roots of the Brexit movement start at Oxford. So it's just that uh, Brussels interfered uh, or was a block to their sense of entitlement. That was really the Yeah, it's not really, it's not an economic conspiracy. That's why I call these people a caste and not a class. They're not so much acting in the financial economic interests of their class because, you know, the mainstream prediction very strongly was that Brexit would make Britain poorer, it would damage business. They didn't really care about that. And that's how it's panned out. What they cared about was men like us go to the House of Commons and become ministers and prime minister, and we rule over a superpower, or at least that's what it was before they were born. And that's the way it should be. Britain has its divine right to be a superpower in their mind. And the last thing we want is to become such a secondary power that these faceless people in suits in Brussels with funny accents who don't do witty English rhetoric like us, uh, last thing they want is that those people should have any hand in running Britain. Now, it seems that this crew, I think you at one point referred to them as having cartoon personal brands. Part of the cartoon is like they're trying to recreate the Britain of old, that old upper class. But that old upper class acquired and ran an empire. These people don't seem to have anywhere near that level of competence. They had ambition without a cause, as I think you said at one point. What was the goal of all this? Um, they, do they really want to try to recreate the glory days of the British Empire, which seem you know, totally irretrievable? No, they don't believe that you know, Britain can rule India again. I mean, you say competence, but the empire, there was a lot of incompetence, which, you know, contributed to terrible famines on the British control in India and Ireland. So you didn't really have to be competent to run the empire. And if you made mistakes, it didn't matter to the people around the country because the victims were non-British people living far away. So who really cared? I I don't think that there was a, a firm plan there was some kind of sentiment about, you know, Britain should stand up for its rights and say what we believe and make other countries listen to us. I don't think that there was any kind of serious idea that the country could become a superpower again, but at least it should act and look and behave and talk like a superpower. The thing about Brexit is it's very camp. It was never for most people, and least of all for Johnson, who was the face of Brexit, it was never a kind of deeply serious thought through project with a plan. In some ways, it's a kind of comedy caper. Johnson's undoing was a product of his caste belief that rules aren't for them, violating all the COVID rules. He'd had a whole career like that. Uh, So why was this moment his undoing? Was it just an accretion of sins or was there something different about this iteration? Did it all finally just catch up to him? Johnson had always been just an entertainer. He was a television performer and he wrote funny articles in the newspaper. And he was mayor of London, which is much more ceremonial role than being mayor of a big American city. I mean, mayor of London controls almost nothing. So he'd never really had any power. Somebody who's powerless can be funny and they break the rules and, oh, isn't it funny? And he doesn't act like other politicians. But once you become prime minister, most British people do regard it as a serious job. You know, Britain has a a powerful state, uh, which for most people is especially the National Health Service and schools. And then the COVID pandemic comes along. So you're prime minister in serious times. And then people want a kind of level of seriousness and moral commitment that Johnson had never been asked to show before. And he's kind of surprised. He thinks, as you say, you know, well, I always broke the rules. I I never read the dossier. I was never serious. So why are people angry with me now? And the reason they're angry with him now is because their expectations of a prime minister are very different from their expectations of a TV personality. 
Back in the Blair years, it seemed uh, that the, the Tories were a spent force, uh, that uh, Blairite labor had always become the natural party of government. Then these Tories made a comeback. Um, what happened to make that transition? Britain is a two-party system. And generally, you just have to wait if you're the opposition. Wait until the other party screws up. And meanwhile, not look too weird and insane and radical yourself. So you move towards the center where most British people are and you shut up or kick out the crazy right-wing people in your party, or in the case of Labour, the crazy left-wing people. And so that's what the Conservatives did. They waited until Labour screwed up. What came was the financial crisis, which was very damaging for Britain. It wasn't particularly Labour's fault, but um, pretty much all governments in power got punished. And so the Tories were there to catch the ball. And now the Tories look uh, pretty pathetic. What next? The difficulty is that a majority of the British electorate is over 50 or over 55. So the conservative base is really not so different from the Republican base in the US. It's largely pensioners who uh, are not in the economy, so they don't particularly worry if policies are damaging to the economy, who are not worried about things like the unemployment rate, and who feel that the Britain of their childhood has been taken away from them. In some ways, similar to the Trump Republicans, not as angry in Britain, but they also feel, well, I grew up in a white country, I grew up in a powerful country, where has it gone? And so the Conservatives cater to that nostalgia. What you're seeing in the current leadership race for Conservative leader and therefore next Prime Minister now. So Liz Truss is running against Rishi Sunak. Uh, The winner will be elected by 200,000 people who have to be Conservative Party members some of them not even living in Britain, not even British. And what you see is you're catering to an electorate of largely older white men who are Conservative Party members. You see a nostalgia for the Thatcher era. So Liz Truss, you know, she dresses like Thatcher. She tries to sound as unbending as Thatcher. Rishi Sunak speaks Thatcherite economics about tax cuts and rewarding winners. Where is the British glory age? I mean, historically, most people have situated in about 1940. But it seems that for a lot of older Britons on the right, the glory age now is the 1980s, just as it was for Republicans for a long time. The glory age was Reagan's America. And what about that uh, culture that Johnson exemplifies, that of the boarding school bounder, as you put it? Is that caste washed up or is there some life in it yet? I think the tough class has been very badly damaged by Johnson because he's an exemplar of their worst flaws, their, their kind of lack of seriousness, lack of preparation. I think there's a strong feeling so many of his own voters appealed away, which interestingly didn't happen with Trump's voters. Uh, Trump's voters stuck with him. Johnson's voters just disappeared and said, look, we don't, we don't support you anymore. There's a turning away from the kind of entitled tough now. And there was a similar moment in 1964 when there'd been three Eton and Oxford prime ministers in a row. Uh, Labour defeated them in the 1964 election. Harold Wilson, a meritocratic boy, working class origin, uh, became prime minister And for 40 years after that, the Conservatives did not dare elect a privately educated leader. They went with state school people for 40 years. And I think post-Johnson, we're in a little bit of that kind of moment that although uh, Sunak is privately educated, he does come from a more kind of striving immigrant class. But the the Etonian caste of people born to power has really suffered from Johnson's image damage. And then what about labor? I mean, uh, uh, Starmer sounds to me like a warmed over Bill Clinton from like 1994. Do they have any possibilities? Starmer doesn't have half of Clinton's charisma, nothing like. Starmer is a bit more, I would say, a kind of center-left version of George H.W. Bush, you know, responsible guy who's held big posts. Uh, Starmer was sort of head of public prosecutions in the UK, which is a major job. Serious person, uh, but about as charismatic as George H.W. His problem also is he leads a very divided party. So there's a left-wing Labour and a centre-left Labour, which is, which is what he is. And left-wing Labour doesn't like him, sees him as a usurper. And so he struggles to control even his own party. The Conservatives are going to try and make the next election about trance, where Labour doesn't really have a clear position. Starmer won't define what a woman is. Conservatives are also going to make it about Scotland. If you vote Labour, they'll do a deal with the Scottish nationalists, and then Scotland will have a referendum and will peel off, which is very possible. I think Labour probably want to do exactly that. And uh, the Conservatives will, will generally make it about nationalism. It's not really, interestingly, racism has been much less of an issue than in the US, race and immigration. So British people's attitudes to immigration are the most positive in 40 years. Many of the contenders for conservative leader in the early races were non-white and everyone was sort of fine with that. 
in some ways they're much more reasonable than the US Republicans. I mean, this is a right-wing party, but it's not a kind of post-reality party to quite the same degree that the Republicans are. The one big fantasy that the Tories share is that Brexit is going to work out, Brexit's going to be great, which relies on kind of daily denials of reality. Brexit is their fantasy, their, their fake news. That was Simon Cooper, a columnist for the Financial Times and author of Chums, How a Tiny Cast of Oxford Tories Took Over the UK, just out from Profile Books. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. How are some of the kinks, the Village Green Preservation Society? I learned from Genius.com that the Donald Duck reference is probably an allusion to Cockney rhyming slang, in which the phrase has two meanings, one being luck, and the other something the FCC would fine us for. And now to round out our overview of British politics in 2022, a look at the Labour Party. For that, I'm joined by James Meadway, director of the Progressive Economy Forum, a London-based think tank. He is the former economic advisor to John McDonnell, who was Jeremy Corbyn's shadow chancellor of the Exchequer from 2015 to 20, the period of Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party. Corbyn et al. were driven out by a disgraceful multi-year propaganda campaign by the party's centrists and the entire British establishment, who were alarmed by their socialist proclivities. Corbyn was replaced by a charmless character with soft centrist politics named Keir Starmer. Starmer gave a speech a few weeks ago laying out his economic policy, which was mostly mush. Here's James Meadway with more. I was reading Starmer's economic policy speech from, what, a week or two ago? And I see these these words. Because Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss rage against the dying of the Thatcherite light, they don't understand the economic strength and the 21st century needs partnership. They don't believe you need state and market business and worker. This partnership talk... Sounds like warmed over third way Clinton and Blair for the 21st century. He even uses a really Clinton-esque phrase, we should have a laser-like focus on boosting long-term productivity. Before we get to the specifics, if you can call them that, what do you make of this approach generally? It's not quite the third way, or at least it's not the third way in practice. It, it reminded me of the sort of language that Tony Blair and the man who became his, his Chancellor of the Exchequer, Gordon Brown, would use before Blair got elected, which was talking about partnership and Germany as a model and reforms to British capitalism, where you know instead of Thatcherism, where it's all just dog-eat-dog, war of all against all, we'll have a a nice, friendly, interventionist state and unions will sit down with bosses and everything will be sort of peace and prosperity forever. That's a kind of happy vision. What Blair does in office is actually something different. And I think Starr, in this case, and his team are quite deliberately trying to use Germany as a bit of a model that, that he had this big visit out there to meet the the new German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, uh, a couple of weeks ago. He keeps referencing what Germany's doing, which is peculiar because actually the Germany government is not in a particularly good state at the minute. I mean, the kind of post-reunification economic model of the last three decades, kind of the wheels are coming off this quite rapidly between the the invasion of Ukraine, uh, the raging inflation, the inability of German capitalism to keep a a lid on prices and on what unions are doing. None of this really works particularly well. The loss of China as an export market or increasing pressures there. So to take Germany now as a model is a bit peculiar. But that's the kind of content of the speech. That's where the thing lands, I suppose. If I wind my memory back to the early 90s, Germany was a popular model for uh, center-left politicians in the uh, the English-speaking countries. Several years later, we had uh, Schroeder bringing in, what do they call, mini-jobs, um, creating a whole new low-wage uh, sector. That seems like they were really using us as a model <laughs> rather than uh, are using them as a model. What exactly is it in Germany's economic structure that they find appealing? 
look, I mean, I think some of it is just a pure communications thing. Like if, you, if you're sitting in Britain or if you're sitting in England in particular, there's a list of sort of approved countries where, where you as a politician, particularly if you're on the centre left, you can always point to them and go, look at what they're doing. We can do that. And Germany's very definitely on that list for, for whatever reason. It's in people's heads as a good country where things work. I mean, Scandinavia performs the same function. Parts of America sometimes have the same kind of appeal. I mean, Blair and, and Brown would always sort of try and model themselves and what Clinton was doing. And there's a bit of the centre left that still thinks a bit like that. Probably not so much anymore. And then, then there's a whole load of countries that obviously you can't do that for. I mean, Venezuela uh, leading the pack. So so you can see that the global north, there's a global south sort of economic mentality or economic model in people's heads there. I think more substantively, we're doing it ourselves. We're here talking about the 1990s when we're sitting in 2022. There's a real problem with the Starmer project and its reference points and what it believes it should be doing uh, at this point in time, where it's like, can we do 1997 all over again and ignore the, what, 25 or so years since and ignore in particular the very, very pressing crisis right now, which he barely references in that speech and certainly doesn't come anywhere near close to saying what Labour could do or what the government could do about it, which is the cost of living crisis, which is simply put, a crisis of you know, prices being too high and rising and wages being too low. And what does he say about what he's going to do right now when most households in Britain are looking at energy price increases to heat their homes, to provide electricity of about 65% in, in the start of October. So from £1,500 a year to something over £3,000 a year. It's an incredible uh, amount of money that's going to get demanded off people coming up in the next two months or so. And he had nothing to say about this. It's just constructing this kind of castle in the air of like, wouldn't it be great if we're like Germany? And then it's other sort of fantasy thing of like growth, growth, growth. What are we going to do this for? We're going to get growth. Well, all right, where is this growth? Hasn't been growth, much growth to speak of in British capitalism, like actually quite a lot of other developed capitalisms for a long period of time. And there's not very much in that speech that says this is the magic ingredient that's going to get it back and make everything work for everyone. So, so in terms of actual content and the specifics of where British capitalism and therefore everyone living in British capitalism are at right now, it really doesn't say very much. Also in that speech, he says, we cannot be like the Tories clinging to old ideas trapped in our history, not to hark back to our old ideas in the face of new challenges. I thought Blair did away with all that history. Is, is it making a comeback or is this a dig at Corbyn? I think it's probably a, more of a dig at Corbyn as anyone else. This is this is Blair's old thing about the forces of conservatism. Listeners with very long memories of British politics, <laughs> this is Blair's big attack on both the actual Conservative Party and as well as the other forces of conservatism, by which he meant the left and the trade unions. This was all one lump of you know old thinkers and their terrible old thinking ways. So so he's kind of got a bit of that going on. But the the bit that's striking here is that I, I think this seriously underestimates the Conservative Party. I mean, the Conservative Party in Britain has. Been been in power in, in that country for most of the last 200 years. They've learned a few tricks about how to govern. The 70s into the 80s, it had Thatcher and neoliberalism is a good trick. And then coming out of 2019, in response to Brexit, in response actually to the Labour Party and, and the rise of, of Jeremy Corbyn, they have Boris Johnson promising to spend money, end austerity. We're not going to do Thatcherism. We're going to have levelling up, he calls it, get rid of regional inequalities, investment in the north of England, that sort of thing. A lot of kind of rhetoric, more than any delivery. But nonetheless, it's there. That's the Tory party adapting. And the risk we've got right now is that, OK, there's a Conservative leadership contest going on. Boris Johnson has sort of almost left office in this, this trail of scandal and, and, and devastation and, and general widespread public disapproval. The Tories are electing a new leader, entirely subject to the whims of their party members. They strongly favour a kind of someone who who sort of cosplays Margaret Thatcher with not very much conviction. But nonetheless, this is what uh, Liz Truss does. When whoever it is wins that contest or rise in October, September, the first thing they'll face is this uh, massive increase in, in energy prices due to the sort of regulation of the domestic energy market. And I'll be astonished if they don't just turn around and say, well, we borrowed a load of money for COVID. We'll borrow a load of money just to get people through this. And then what's the Labour Party going to say? What's he got to offer? If he's still sitting there going, oh, boo, same old Tories, they just cut things. They're just horrible to everyone. And the Tories who have demonstrated really quite a willingness to borrow a large amount of money and spend that money in the last few years, just turn around and do the same trick. And Labour's left there going, oh, yeah, well, it's still top-hatted capitalists and, and it's George Osborne still, and, and it's just not. So I think there's there's a lack of political flexibility about how Labour's thinking about this at the same time. And they're, they're likely to be caught napping. 
The emphasis on growth seems odd in the moment of climate crisis, although he says the, the issues are separable, but I'm not entirely convinced. But in any case, um, is this a use of growth to take uh, the edge off any kind of distributional conflict? Absolutely that. I mean, look, this is this is the go-to point for social democrats for at least as long as it's been possible to measure growth. So in the late 1940s, 1950s, Tony Crosland's The the Future of Socialism is the the classic sort of er text, at least in in Britain, for for this line of thinking, where you go, okay, no point worrying about distribution under capitalism, no point worrying about how big your slice of the cake is. If the cake's getting bigger, then basically everyone does better and we don't have to think about redistribution too much. And it's exactly the Function uh, that growth has in in Starmer's speech and, and in the thinking of the kind of centre left is that as long as we get growth, we're going to pay for improved public services. We're going to make the NHS work. We're going to make schools really good again. All that stuff. That's all going to happen because we're going to get growth. Now, how you're going to get growth? When the British economy has been strikingly poor at producing growth for a long period of time, stepping back and looking a bit wider, the same goes for great chunks of the developed world. And coming out of this end of COVID and facing goodness knows what in terms of extreme weather, wars, disruption in the future, I wouldn't place too many bets on growth being particularly sustained into the future either. This is a huge bet and something that you're not very likely to deliver. You're not saying right now what you're going to do for those millions of people who are going to be looking to vote for Labour because that's its solid working class base still. You're not saying very much about what you do for those people. And that's partly also that something that's happening a bit in Britain now is that after a long period of, of quiescence of being very, very quiet, you start to see trade unions moving into action. The strikes uh, are picking up on the railways. Barristers and lawyers are, are, of all people, teachers are threatening to go on strike. Dock workers are balloted for strike action for the first time ever. Call centre workers uh, have been taking a a day of strike action. It's really starting to pick up. And that's shifting how politics is operating out of whatever Westminster wants to talk about, which is often nonsensical. And if it starts trying to talk and fantasise about growth in the future, it's really not addressing the problems most people have and shifting the political initiative elsewhere. So that's potentially quite exciting. That's something that that will break this otherwise rather depressing sort of post-Corbyn or post-Covid period that we've got ourselves into. Starmer fired the uh, the transport or shadow transport minister for uh, daring to appear on a picket line. Yeah, exactly. I and mean, this was this was on the back of a previous claim by the leader's office, leader of the Labour Party's office, that no Labour MP should be going on a picket line because Labour wants to be a party of government. Party of government doesn't have people going on picket lines. This is not sensible. Um, forgetting entirely that, look, it was the trade unions that set up the Labour Party. It is called the Labour Party for a simple reason, right? It's not like the Democrats in the US, by the way, where you, the thing was set up and the trade unions tag along later. This was literally established by the trade unions to provide representation in Parliament. This is the you know, ABC of why the party exists at all. And this was widely ignored, by the way. It's a sign of Starmer's diminishing authority that actually lots of MPs have been off to support quite rightly, uh, workers and strike in the, in the last few weeks, including this instance, uh, Sam Tarry, who's a deputy transport minister on a rail workers picket line in his constituency, doing interviews of press, doing exactly the right things and saying, uh, we're here to support workers, defending their living standards. Now, the bit that the leader's office not Starmer himself, but his office, his spokespeople claimed that Sam Tarry was sacked for, was that he was inventing policy, that Sam had said in this interview that Labour doesn't want to see people facing real terms cuts to their pay. If that's inventing Labour policy to say Labour will not oppose real terms cuts to people's pay, what on earth is the point of the party? You're saying at this point, what, you favour people being made poorer? You're just going to line up with the Tories and say, very sorry, we can't risk a wage price spiral or whatever fantasy it is this week. Everybody has to take a pay cut to deal with inflation. This is a sort of nonsense position you get yourself into. So this arrival, if you like, or big increase in working class struggle of like a very sort of immediately recognisable, I won't say old fashioned, but a kind we haven't seen in this sort of scale for a while, has really disrupted what the, the Starmer project was all about. And people like Sam and the other MPs going out to, to picket lines, I think, are the ones who are, who are pointing the way to what the future for Labour ought to look like. And if it's got any real future politically, I suspect it will look like. I'm speaking with James Meadway, director of the London-based Progressive Economy Forum. Okay, there are five points he emphasizes in this speech. We'll be financially responsible, (laughs) so much for the Tory plan to borrow a lot of money and spend it. We'll be distinctively British, although I guess he's looking towards Germany. We'll work in partnership with business. We'll re-energize communities and spread economic power 
we will refocus our investment on boosting productivity. I mean, these are just um, bromides. Do these things mean anything? I think being distinctively British was the one that that I I found and lots of people found the most sort of We'd have a special British uh, measure of growth, maybe, and that's that would be one way to to make sure you're actually delivering it. You know, the, the BGDP or whatever you might want to call it, uh, sticky Union Jack and everything. Behind all of this, there are some bits and pieces of policy, but you, you have to be quite a long way into Wonkland to sort of pick up on this. The, the Labour Party now does have a policy of saying, and you'll recognise this from what the Biden administration has proposed and is starting to do, and it's it's happening in Europe, it's happening across the world. It's the idea that governments after COVID and after the various shocks we've seen, should be much more intervention. It should be looking to buy and source and use their procurement powers to invest and buy from uh, companies located locally rather than you know the, the old neoliberal globalised thing that will just go all over the world and buy from wherever we want. It's a deliberate attempt to try and relocalise supply chains. That's what's lurking behind that. But as it's presented... That's not there. And in any case, this policy, to return to the point, is not going to address the cost of living crisis right now. On the cost of living crisis right now, you're saying either, if you're the Labour Party leadership, you're saying either nothing or you're sacking your MPs from their front bench positions for going on picket lines and arguing that workers shouldn't face real term cuts to their their living standards. I mean, it's just it's a, it's a nonsense position. Now, I don't believe it's going to be sustainable, but the risk for Labour is that actually the Tory party who were often a bit sharper about these things than than we'd like to to think, will be straight out of the blocks in September, October with a new prime minister who clearly doesn't care about borrowing loads of money. I mean, she says she'll borrow it to do tax cuts. Well, maybe she will, maybe she won't. But she's going to borrow loads of money and very easily just say, here's a nice fat check for everyone facing a big increase in their energy bill. There's a real risk that will happen. Where's the Labour Party in that? Tagging along behind saying, oh, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. It's it's, it's crap. (laughs) This is going nowhere. It's not addressing the actual material conditions people face right now for this fantasy of sort of managerialism that you'll be able to do in the future when everything's calmed down again. And what about the investment? What's he talking about? Public investment? That's the other bit. I mean, this is the thing where they, they kind of, on the policies they have, they've gotten themselves into a peculiarly awkward position of they do have policy. They have said, they have kept committing to spending £28 billion a year, which is, you know, in terms of the British GDP, is a lot. I mean, it's actually more if you look at it, then Jeremy Corbyn promised in a single year on green investments. That's big. It's significant. It's, it's comparable to what Biden said he was going to do and then hasn't actually done. But it, that's kind of hidden away somewhere. It's not something they talk about. If they actually brought that forward and said, this is what it's going to mean, that scale of investment means good quality green jobs right the way throughout the country. This is how we're going to do it. And they could go on the front foot a bit and start to look like they had a plan. As it is, it's tucked away somewhere. There's a lot of rhetoric about growth basically there so they don't have to talk about tax rises for the rich or whatever. And the actual policy rattling around somewhere is is left to sort of die in the dark. This is all very wonky and uninspiring. Is there any visceral appeal to them? Uh, do the post-Boris Tories have any of that? Um, is there any appeal to Sunak or Trust, or is there just everybody, you know, is everybody a wonk these days? The Tories have a, a slightly sort of well, they have a kind of two-stage election process. Uh, every MP who wants to have a go, if they get enough nominations, stands. The MPs vote amongst themselves in successive rounds to whittle the field down to two. These people are then presented to the Conservative Party membership, who no one's actually sure how many members the Tory party has. It's probably around 160,000, but it's not very clear. It's also not very clear who they are, although surveys and things suggest you'll be astonished to hear uh, it's about 72% male. It, it, the average age is 57 up to 60 or so. Overwhelmingly, people who live in London, the southeast, that's the sort of prosperous parts of the country, exactly who you expect. So they get to decide at the end of August, early September. The two candidates remaining are Rishi Sunak, who was briefly the most popular politician in Britain because he was administering the furlough payments, the very, very significant sums of money that were being handed out to millions of people, actually, who, who weren't able to work during lockdown. And it's a good way to become popular. But he's now spent months presenting himself as Mr. Sensible, I will balance the books on one side. On the other hand is Liz Truss, who, who presents herself as a sort of second coming of Margaret Thatcher, talks an awful lot of, of red meat for the Tory base, uh, to, to use something of a cliche, which is big old tax cuts for absolutely everybody, clanging a big bell about how terrible the unions are and how she's going to ban strikes and this sort of thing. And what's staggering about this, if you look at the polling today, by the way, Liz Truss is easily the favourite to, to win this particular contest. She's, she's a good 30 points ahead if the polling's right uh, from Rishi Sunak. If you look at the polling for the whole country and which party people would vote for, Labour's actually falling behind. The gap between the Tory and the Labour Party is closing during the course of what looks to the outside like a mad big row 
uh, inside the Conservative Party. Usually, internal party rows are incredibly damaging to party support because most normal people don't want to see a bunch of politicians yelling at each other over fairly nuanced points. It's not really their thing. In fact, the Tory party are gaining on Labour whilst this contest is taking place, almost certainly if it's any cause for this, it's because there's actually Liz Truss in particular saying a load of pretty much howling at the moon, um, crazy stuff about banning strikes, about cutting everybody's taxes. I'm Thatcher all over again. And a whole load of people think that's just great. Oh, and I shouldn't forget Brexit. And we're going to super duper do Brexit as well. This is really, really a critical. Uh, Liz Truss, by the way, voted and campaigned for Remain, but has totally reinvented herself in the course of the last few years. So so that's got all the Tories or, or a whole bunch of them who are feeling a bit sort of down in the dumps, a whole bunch of them somewhat invigorated. And they're all saying they'll vote Conservative again. And the Tories gain the polls. And Labour's left with very little say other than if you vote for us, we'll we what somewhat better managers of this this complete heap of a situation and maybe you'll get growth in the future but what about the appeal of uh starmer and the labor party do they have any um, other than these sort of wonky points you know when you ask people like what's your favorable unfavorable view of a politician starmer's view on the polling is that people have a vaguely unfavorable impression of him for a long period of time they had no impression at all he always had loads of don't knows and, and starmer's people would be like oh well it's a pandemic he's not had a chance to say what he thinks he now has and broadly speaking people have a, a somewhat unfavorable view of him he's less unpopular than boris johnson but i would assume that as soon as the tories stop this kind of row that they're having get a new leader especially if a new leader is a bit of diamond dynamism about them you know a bit of get up and go might actually do something in office any lead labor has Will, will evaporate entirely come the autumn in the teeth of what is a disastrous cost of living crisis with inflation expected to reach what, what is almost a decade long unheard of level of 11% when wages, average wages are rising 4%. So everybody's looking at a huge pay cut. And yet the Tory party, I think, will, will, will be able to sort of backflip out of that and do really rather well out of it. And Labour will be left waiting for the 1990s to return, which of course they're not. So here's the question for you. Um, what about the cost of living crisis? What could be done? The particular focus for this is going to be because of the way the domestic energy market works in Britain, the regulator of that market sets a cap on the amount people have to pay to heat their home and get electricity for their home uh, every six months, which when prices weren't moving very much, didn't really matter too much. But now prices astronomically shot up much, much more in Britain and the rest of Europe than you have uh, in in the US for, for gas and for oil. This has now become a real political issue every six months, because every six months you get a 56% increase, a 65% increase, perhaps even a 77% increase in your gas bill. Um, so it's a real life focus. The obvious thing to do straight away is to say, look, this is at least the after effects of COVID, and we'll just stick a load of money into the system to uh, make sure people don't face uh, those huge, huge hits, their standard of living, a massive increase in their gas bill. We'll just cover the costs. As the quid pro quo for that, we should do something that ought to happen anyway, which is say, because we're handing all this money out to the industry, we will take equity uh, in return for doing this. You start to nationalise once again the gas supply in the whole country. Looking out further, just thinking about gas, then yes, that's when you start to talk about renewables. That's when you start to talk about investing not in basically unstable, unreliable fossil fuel, you start to invest in the renewables. But if you're talking right now, the other thing that needs to happen, I suggest, is a big increase in the minimum wage. It'd be good to have more people in unions fighting to win inflation-busting pay rises, and everyone should be getting at least 10 or 11% right now. That- well, what is the minimum wage? Well, minimum wage at the minute is £9.60 an hour. It's, it's really not very high. And it's scheduled to rise. Last time it rose, it rose about five, six percent. Uh, that's back in March when you've got eleven percent inflation. Some of the poorest paid workers in the country are really losing out. So a big old increase to a lot of the unions have suggested, and the Progressive Economy Forum, the think tank I run, has done a report on how this would work. Have suggested fifteen pounds an hour. So, so you're, you're sort of adding fifty percent on to the minimum wage, just as a real boost to people's wages, particularly at uh, the bottom end of the distribution. And actually, if you're the Labour Party, and this is something specific for Labour, then you should be supporting every strike every strike, every pay claim, and insisting that every single one of them should be above the rate of inflation. Because the big secret in all of this, in the cost of living crisis, exactly like in the US, exactly like in the rest uh, of the developed world, at least, is that profits have gone through the roof. 
utterly unsurprising because wages have barely moved, but prices have gone up, so course profits have gone up. And an extraordinary amount of money has now been shoveled over to a bunch of uh, incredibly large corporations. Shell, BP, yesterday announcing £6.9 billion of profit in the last three months. That's what you need to target. That's what you need to attack. And this is a simple issue of redistribution. You take from the profiteers and you hand that money out to workers. What do you say to the people who uh, say that injecting all the cash subsidies for energy and uh, encouraging wage increases, that's inflationary at the time of uh, high inflation? They've got this completely the wrong way around. The, the inflation that we're facing, the, the sort of primal cause of this is instability in the rest of the world of various sorts, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the uh, the fact you've got this backwash from, from the lockdowns and actually continuing uh, lockdowns, if, if you see what's happening with China, that you have extreme weather events all over the world disrupting food supplies, coffee, grain, various other bits and pieces out there, some essentials. This is feeding into a higher rate of inflation, but it's got nothing to do with how much you're paying nurses or teachers or, or supermarket shelf stackers in Britain. You know, if you cut the pay uh, of uh, a train guard in Britain, it doesn't make the gas you're buying in Qatar any cheaper. It's absolute nonsense to talk about a wage price spiral. And it's nonsense to talk about it when inflation is going to hit something like 11% come October and wages rising 4%. It's wages running to keep up with inflation and failing, not wages running ahead of inflation pulling prices up. So this is just fantasy fantasy talk. It's a way of disguising the real problem, because the real problem is on all that instability, feeds into the way our capitalist uh, economy works and translates into uh, massive profits right at the top. That's what you need to target. That's how you're going to try and protect people from some of these price rises and instability that's happening. And it's a thing that neither of the leaderships of the main two parties in Britain will talk about at this point in time. Trade unions, by the way, have been. Uh, Mick Lynch, who is leader of the Railway Workers Union, the RMT, has done a fantastic job. He's become easily one of the most popular politicians or political figures in the country in the last few weeks for being a calm, articulate advocate for precisely saying profits are huge, wages are low, take from profits, pay people more. That was James Meadway, director of the Progressive Economy Forum, a London-based think tank. By the way, the UK minimum wage of £9.50 an hour is equal to $11.50 right now, almost 60% higher than our minimum wage. Ours has been $7.25 an hour since July 2009. Its real value is 27% below where it was after that increase, and incredibly, 23% below where it was after a substantial increase in 1950. In real, that is inflation-adjusted terms, it hasn't been this low since 1949. A £15 an hour minimum wage would translate into 1820 here, which is over two and a half times ours. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Since Keir Starmer wants it to be 1997 all over again, I thought a little music from that year would be nice. Here's Slater Kinney, the title track from their album, Dig Me Out. Till next week, bye.